All right, there's three of you who didn't watch basketball last night, and you said good morning, and the rest of you are like me, pitiful and miserable. Uh, but the good news is we are gathered with God's people, and that is always an encouragement to us. Uh, and so we are glad that you're here to join us this morning. If you will open up your Bibles, uh, we are going through Nehemiah, as you know. Uh, if you're new to CBC, we have this week and next week through Nehemiah, and then in a few weeks we will start the Gospel of John. Uh, but if you will turn to Nehemiah chapter 11, we're going to start by reading the first uh, six verses of Nehemiah together this morning. Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1. And I will butcher these names, don't hold it against me. They're very difficult to say. Uh, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived, a, lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athiah, the son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shepatiah, son of Mahalel, of the sons of Perez, and, uh, and Massasiah, the son of Baruch, the son of Kohozan, son of Hazaziah, son of Adadiah, son of Jorib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shelonite. And all of the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word this morning to Nehemiah chapter 11, we come before you, people hungry to hear your word. And so we pray that as we go through this text this morning in chapter 11 and into chapter 12, uh, that the Holy Spirit would be at work illuminating us, convicting us, prompting us, and encouraging us. Father, we thank you for your word, for the history that you pass down from generation to generation of your good works and faithfulness to your people. Father, we thank you that we can gather together as your people this morning to praise you and to hear your word proclaimed. Father, it's in your name that you ask that uh, you would bless this time and the Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds. Amen. As we draw to a close here uh, in Nehemiah, now we're at chapter 11, only two chapters left after this, chapter 12 and 13, we need to remind ourselves what the purpose of these books have even been about. For many people, they know of the book of Ezra as the book that God's temple is rebuilt. For Nehemiah, it's the book pastors always go to to convince everybody to give money to build a new church. Uh, that's not the case as we discussed early on with Ezra and Nehemiah. Their true purpose is something more than just the buildings that are built during these texts. The heart of the matter in Ezra and Nehemiah is not the work of the people or the buildings that they're going to have, but the work of God in restoring his people back to the land that he had promised. 
These people in the book of Ezra we see will worship as they were meant to worship in the temple, which is why the temple has such a great emphasis. And then in Nehemiah, they will dwell and live in his holy city again, which is why the wall must be rebuilt. But the focus of these books is not the construction projects, but rather the work of God in drawing his people back to himself in the land that he had promised to them. And we might assume now towards the end of Nehemiah that this great work has been finished. If you remember in Ezra 2, the people returned from exile, the first group. They start to re-inhabit the land. They build their cities up. Then they start to work on the temple, and the temple is completed in Ezra chapter 6. And then we keep going and keep going, and we get to Nehemiah chapter 6 a few chapters ago, and the walls around the city are completed. And so we might ask, what is left to be accomplished in this resettlement of God's people? Well, Nehemiah 11 makes that very clear. The city must be repopulated. The people must return to Jerusalem. Yes, they had come back to the land. Yes, they had come back to worship. Yes, the city had been fortified, but few people had yet to move into Jerusalem to call it their home. And so three things we will notice this morning in chapters 11 and 12. First is the importance of sacrificial leadership. The importance of sacrificial leadership. Second is this, the costliness of following God. The costliness of following God. And finally, uh, the third point we'll see this this morning, the importance of establishing and remembering our heritage. The importance of establishing and remembering our heritage. For the temple had been completed, the wall was built, but now Nehemiah looks at these people and says, we have an issue, the city needs to have people living in it. And so Nehemiah 11 opens up with a fairly strange scene to us. We can pass by it very quickly in these first two verses, but what this holds has great importance to us. Nehemiah, in chapter 10, uh, records this renewal of the covenant. The people, as we talked about last week, as Paul uh, preached, was reaffirming their commitment to God. God would be their God, and they would be his people. We are in this together. We are committed to living and being the people you call us to be. And so Nehemiah 11 opens up with a test of sorts. Will these people really be committed to the covenant? Will they really be committed to God? And the first point we see there in the first verse, first half of the verse, is the importance of sacrificial leadership. What's it tell us? Verse 1, the first half of it, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. That makes sense. We read it and we go, duh, where else would they live? But as these few verses unfold, we start to see that it is a very unique thing for them to live in Jerusalem. For us, we say it makes sense. Jerusalem's the center of the religious activity, the political activity, that should be the center of the economic activity for all of the people of Israel. But then we start to see that nobody is actually living there yet, only these leaders. And it's no small matter that they had moved to Jerusalem already. There is a reason people didn't move to the holy city. 
First and foremost, it was dangerous. Ezra and Nehemiah both are packed with story after story of the people that are surrounding Israel wanting to bring destruction specifically to Jerusalem. They don't want the temple to be built, and they certainly don't want the walls to be fortified. Ezra and Nehemiah, nearly a hundred years, the people have felt the, the pressure of outsiders to prevent the resettlement of Jerusalem. Now, Nehemiah deals with this. Everybody comes in, they're building the wall, they have guards, it's this wonderful story of men holding trowels in one hand and a spear in the other, and yet now the wall is completed, what has happened? Everybody's gone home. There's nobody left to really defend Jerusalem well. The city is vulnerable, and people know this. They move back to the villages, and now Jerusalem is in a dangerous position and susceptible to attacks. Which is why I think in all of the genealogies here later, it mentions valiant men multiple times. Warriors are returning. The city will be defended. But another reason the people hadn't moved yet is the difficulty of making money. Everybody knows we need income. People needed to produce things and barter and trade things. They had crops uh, in order to survive. If Jerusalem is newly rebuilt, nobody's really living there, there's not a lot of opportunity for them to make much money. How will they provide for their families? There's not much business activity happening yet. If we're to move to the capital, we're going to have to start my business from scratch. It's going to have to even probably be a new business. There's no markets to trade in. Uh, it's going to be difficult. So there's an economic limitation to the people moving back to Jerusalem. But finally, and probably most significantly for the people of Israel, moving to the capital meant leaving their extended families. For a hundred years, they had begun to repopulate the countryside. There was grandmas and great-grandmas. There's cousins, nieces, nephews, all kinds of extended family that they had for support, for joy, for fellowship. To move to the city would be to leave all of this behind. And yet, despite this great personal cost, the leaders have led by example. And Nehemiah 11 tells us, here at the very beginning, not that the leaders are moving there, they have already moved. They lived in Jerusalem. They are willing to be sacrificial leaders. One might assume as we read this and we see all the success that's happened in the city of Jerusalem with the temple, with the wall, that there would be people wanting to flock there. And yet we see that's not the case. Despite the leadership of those heads of households, nobody is moving. As an aside here, it's important for us and an encouragement for us uh, that are in different capacities of leadership, whether you're simply helping to lead your house, whether you're leading in the business, whatever it is, that often leadership leaves us feeling alone and isolated. These people have moved, nobody followed. We shouldn't be discouraged when we act and pray and do the things that God has called us to do and we don't see the immediate results that we expect. Often leadership means being alone. And we would do well in those moments when we feel isolated, when we feel all alone, when we keep asking ourselves, God, why did you have me do this? It seems fruitless and pointless. 
my family's not joining me, then it's not making an effect. Uh, to remember these people, Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1, the leaders move, they're all alone. And even more, we can draw encouragement from Jesus, who models not only sacrificial leadership in giving himself up on the cross, but is probably the greatest example of a leader being abandoned by the people he leads. As he goes to the cross and his disciples scatter, Peter denies him, he's all alone. And yet he's willing to do it and lead because it's the call of God. But back to Nehemiah here. Jerusalem needs people. The leaders have led sacrificially, but nobody has moved, so a solution is found. Nehemiah says, we'll cast lots. Now, we don't do that in today's day and age. Uh, Perhaps, like, maybe playing craps would be something similar uh, in a very extended, remote way. Uh, But casting lots is simply a way for these people to determine God's will. It's like drawing the short straw. Nehemiah gets people into groups. Uh, It says nine out of ten were allowed to stay where they were, and one out of ten had to uproot and go to the capital. Uh, Sounds like a great way to determine your future. Yeah, I've built this farm. I'm, I'm successful. You know, I've got this great family. I'm making an impact in my village. And Nehemiah's like, if you get the short straw, you leave it all behind. What happens here? The people are arranged in groups, but nobody says a word. They're all like, sounds good. We're game. I'm willing to risk a 90% chance of staying here. I guess that's good odds, they might be thinking. Uh, But they don't even balk at this ask of Nehemiah. This is where we see that second point in the text. The second half of verse 1 and in verse 2, there is a costliness of being devoted to God. If we follow God, we should expect often to pay a great cost. 90% of the people who had just renewed the covenant were going to get to stay right where they were to experience all of the blessings of their villages, the vast green pastures that they got to meander through. One out of ten would have to move to the dusty, urban center of Jerusalem. There is a great cost being shown here. Raymond Brown writes this about these people. Few of these people would have chosen to leave familiar communities where all of them had grown up since the first return of exiles a hundred years earlier. For most of them, the change of location would be a highly traumatic experience, moving from a largely rural to an urban community. It was a costly transition from the spacious, expansive countryside to a more confined and restricted pattern of life. It meant leaving their homes, wider families, neighbors, work, friends, and familiar locations and setting up life in a radically different environment. Some of you have relocated and you know the pain of relocation. For me, the first time I moved was from right here down the street uh, to Fountain Hills when I got my first uh, full-time job as a pastor. And I grew up here, and it was rural, believe it or not. This was, our church was in Orange Grove. Uh, there was deserts everywhere. The evil HOAs, the tyranny didn't exist. We had free reign to do whatever we wanted. 
We were unincorporated, just a small little county island in the middle of nowhere. You could shoot fireworks off, ride your go-kart in the street, whatever you wanted, it was all free, and it was wonderful for a young boy growing up. But as you grow older, you see that there's a cost when you move. And I remember the first time you move into a community that has things like HOAs, where people tell you what color your house can be. I had a neighbor with a blue house and a neighbor with an orange house. Nobody batted an eye growing up. But now everybody has to have the same tan house. Uh, These are things, and I make light of it, but this is some of the traumatic things that the people would have experienced. All they've known is the freedom of the countryside. And even just moving to Jerusalem meant a radically different life. But the city had to be repopulated. If Jerusalem was going to grow, if it was going to become commercially viable, if it was going to have uh, adequate protection, if it was going to become the heartbeat of the entire country, people had to live there. The people had hesitated. Few volunteer, and yet all of them understand that it was God's will for some of them to move to Jerusalem. And so lots are cast, and the people of Israel, one out of ten, receive their fate and say, this is the will of God, I will go. What does this tell us? That for these people, although universally almost, none of them wanted to move to Jerusalem, what they preferred was secondary to what God desired. There was a costliness of being his people. If they were going to be people who submitted to God and said, you are my God, we are your people, we will go where you tell us. Nehemiah says, okay, one out of 10 of you are gonna have to go to Jerusalem. They all say, God is good, let it be. And one out of 10, move. But the question for us then, is this our attitude? Is this our attitude today? Or are we only willing to follow God up until the point it's no longer convenient? God doesn't call all of us to leave everything and move to a foreign land. He doesn't call all of us to move from one city to the next. But he often calls us to make costly sacrifices. To say, this thing that you desire cannot be anymore. Too often in our modern society, the things that we desire become the fundamental blueprint for what we think God wants for us. Many churches have fallen into grave sin by affirming things because people say, God gave me this desire, Shouldn't shouldn't I act on it? Shouldn't my preference, what I want, if God made me and he gave me this desire, shouldn't I act on it? Shouldn't I have it, or live like that. But for these people, they remind us something fundamental. There is a grave cost of following Christ, and it means that all that we desire must be submitted and secondary to what he desires for us. There is a will of God, and we must submit to it. Now today, we don't cast lots. I've never met a Christian who casts lots to make important decisions. What house are we going to buy? I don't know. Let's cast some lots and see if we're moving to Glendale or Peoria or Vistancia or whatever it is. No, we have other means of determining the will of God for our life. We pray. As Christians, we have the indwelling of God and the Holy Spirit that helps us discern and makes decisions. 
But in all of these cases, we submit ourselves to God and the proper posture is, God, whatever you want, I will do. You know my desire, you may return that desire to me, but it's not my will, but your will that should be done. This is the constant prayer and attitude that Nehemiah here is calling us to and scripture as a whole calls us to. Not our preferences, not our comfort, but the will of God in our lives. The midst of this second section is dotted with family names and genealogies, lists of men that we might recognize throughout scripture. But in the midst of all of these people, there are these others. And what do I mean by others? It means people who are anonymous. They have names like mighty men in verse 6 or 8 of chapter 11. Generally speaking, they have names like brothers, verse 8 of chapter 11, verse 9 of chapter 12. Levites, verse 18 of chapter 11. Gatekeepers, verse 19 of chapter 11. We're told something about them, but not who they are. And we are reminded, I think, as we read these lists and we see these anonymous names, that the call to follow Christ, the costly call, is always because of our love for God and not of a desire to make much of our own name. These men have left everything they've known to move to Jerusalem because they are going to submit themselves to God. The story of the Christian church is littered with people who have worked and worked and worked but are not known to history. I have no doubt that in 50 years, nobody will know who I am outside of a few people in my family. Right? I won't be known as a pastor. Or I'll just be that crazy old guy in the corner throwing rocks at kids, probably. <laughs> they're in my yard. Right? Get out of my head. You know, I, I won't have an HOA, but I'll have a strong arm to keep away the, the vagrants. Right? But, but what happens here? The story of the church, millions of believers for centuries and centuries, the church has progressed and made an impact. Yes, from great, well-known people like Martin Luther, who starts the Protestant Reformation, which we tie our heritage back to, which we love the work that he did, but Martin Luther doesn't get where he is without thousands of unknown people taking his little tracks around to spread the word of faith alone through Christ alone. It doesn't get where it is without unknown, anonymous people willing to have a costly call of following Christ to progress it. Even today, there's, there's believers, there's Sunday school teachers, there's greeters, there's people who visit the sick in hospitals, people who take gospel tracts or invite neighbors over to share the good news of Jesus with them. Totally anonymous to history making a tremendous impact because they've submitted themselves to God and says, God, it's not about my name, it's not about my comfort, but it's about your great name and I will do anything I can to further that cause. The heartbeat of the Christian life is self-sacrifice for the cause of Christ. It's what he calls us to do page after page after page of scripture to say, not our will, not my desire, but your desire. Lord, use me. But what else do we see in these lists? Well, there's something a little different here in Nehemiah 11. Earlier in the book, we have lists of people. 
Ezra has a particularly nice list at the end of all of the, the grave sinners. Right? Ezra, Ezra finishes with, these are all the men who have abandoned their wives and married foreign people. And they give us a whole nice list. Here in Nehemiah 11, what do we have? We have genealogies. It's not just this man and this man, it's this man. It's this man, who's the son of 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 this man. Why is this? The, the people in that time, Ezra and Nehemiah primarily, who are giving us these texts, are stressing the work of God and preserving his people. They are a restored people. They owe everything to him. He is faithful and he is good and he has kept them. Last week, chapter 10, covenant renewal. But Nehemiah here is showing them, even though you've forsaken the covenant, your God has been faithful generation after generation after generation. These lists are a call to see the faithfulness of God passed down throughout all the people. Other nations had risen and fallen, nations more powerful than Israel, nations weaker than Israel. But in all of that, God's people had been preserved. They will continue on. Nehemiah is connecting these people, these present people, with their ancestors. And in doing so, he's also giving us, here today, thousands of years later, a way of remembering and seeing the way that God has been faithful to his people. Nehemiah is inviting us to look back and see the faithfulness of God through all the generations. Leaves a record for future generations like us. Chapter 12 comes to a close. Nehemiah does something. What's he do? The city's rebuilt. Now it's probably repopulated. He calls for a celebration. Verse 27 of chapter 12 says this. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singings, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nephites, also from Beth Gilgal in the region of Geba and Asmaphia. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Why does he throw this big celebration? Why is it right after all these genealogies? I think it's because Nehemiah is marking something. Festivals draw our attention to remembering something. A few weeks ago, you were up all night because your neighbors were shooting firecrackers at your house until like three in the morning. Or maybe that was just me, right? Why do we do that? Fourth of July, we celebrate our great nation. It's a festival that American people have each and every year to say this great date in history, let us not forget it. You celebrate birthdays. Some of you men remember your anniversaries even. And you say, this is the day I'm going to remember my covenant to my wife and this great moment when we were joined together. We are not unfamiliar with this practice. And yet here in Nehemiah, it's on a much bigger scale. We have these community events sometimes. I had hoped that in a few days in Phoenix, we'd have a large victory parade for the Phoenix Suns. Alas, yesterday I went to bed thinking it would be more of a funeral this week as the Suns certainly 
will lose. I have no faith. It's, I've been bro- I'm a broken man. But why do we do this? Because there's something about festivals that we call back on, that we remember, that call our attention to great moments in history. There's a reason churches have such elaborate services for Christmas Eve and Easter. We're remembering the birth of our Savior and the way that we receive salvation through his sacrifice. There are moments that we say as Christians, these are markers. Year after year, we are going to remember the work of our God in bringing us salvation through Christ. So Nehemiah throws a giant party. All the people are gathered together. This is not unfamiliar for the people. They've recently begun holding all of their feasts. Exodus 13 shows us even one of the reasons for this. This is the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the instructions given to Moses from God about it. Verse six of chapter 13 of Exodus. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall, not, or shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all of your territory. You shall tell your son that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. We have festivals to pass down our history and our legacy. And as modern people, I must say, we do not do this well. We do not do this well. We don't often remember significant spiritual moments in our lives. We're quick to have sweet 16s. We're quick to have birthday parties, parades for sports teams. And yet, when was the last time that somebody in your family sat down and said, let's remember this great work of God in our family? I think there is a call here in Nehemiah 12 to begin to become people who see the importance of heritage as a way of expressing the faithfulness of God from generation to generation. God is at work in his people. What's the result of this great celebration? Verse 43, chapter 12. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. They're not just having a party for the sake of having a party. They're having a party because their God had caused them to rejoice. He had done a mighty and marvelous work in their midst. And Nehemiah calls these people to remember it, to reflect on it, and to celebrate it. When was the last time you celebrated the work of God in your life? When you said, God is good and faithful. When's the last time we even paused to, to reflect long enough to see the faithfulness of God over years in our life? I think we often just take it for granted. We don't pass these stories down. I know I have maybe one story of my grandparents of the legacy of God working and doing a great thing in their life. I know he did. I know their faith was great. But for some reason, we've lost that ability to say God has worked in the short family 
this way. Look at the way he's preserved our clan year after year, generation after generation. We all would say he's at work in our midst, that he's doing great things, he's providing for us, he's preserving us, he's helping to guide us and protect us. And yet we don't stop and pause long enough to see what he's doing or what he has done and reflect and remember and to share it. One of the greatest moments and testimonies I have of this is how I even ended up at Christ Bible Church. Some of you know uh, I was a pastor for a long time. I told you I grew up right here. I spent the year before I came to Christ Bible Church in a bitter battle about doctrine, about church philosophy, about anything and everything you could fight about in a church with the new senior pastor that they had hired. I thought the guy was a borderline heretic. He didn't believe in things that I believed in. He didn't teach things that I thought were helpful. And I spent week after week going in his office, confronting him and saying, show me that in scripture. I don't think it's in scripture. And in fact, the opposite is in scripture. And here's my text for it. At the end of the year, I was burnt out, frustrated. A church is crumbling that I loved. People that I had poured countless hours into were leaving. I was a broken, miserable man. My wife had watched people make fun of me and ridicule me for believing that God brings things to pass. It's such a crazy thing to believe in. And I leave that church as a 30-year-old man with a newborn daughter and a wife, move in with my parents while I work part-time and finish school up, broken, dejected, not a lot of hope about what has currently been happening in my life. And yet, what was working through this? God was bringing me out of something into something much better. I found CBC by the recommendation of my grandma, who said, they love the Bible there. You should go to that church. Not what they believe, not their philosophies, none of the things that were important for me in protecting my family. I came to CBC because my grandma said, they love the Bible. And I didn't have any other church to go to that Sunday morning that I felt comfortable going to. And so me and my wife and my six-month-old daughter wander into CBC, Chuck's preaching. I talked to Paul for, you know, who knows how long after service uh, and develop this great connection with these two men. And we never left CBC. I finished school. I became a pastor here. And I have this great family who encourages me week after week, deep connections, even deeper than I had imagined. Why? Because God was faithful. He was pulling me out of something else. It hurt, but he had something much better for me. You guys. That's a story of God's faithfulness. A story that I hope I can tell my daughter and my son. That in 20 or 30 years, I'll be able to tell my grandkids and hopefully their grandkids, although I doubt it. I ate eight pieces of pizza at the men's party on Friday night, so I don't think I have that long. But God's faithfulness is there. His fingerprints are everywhere in our lives. And yet we don't pause to say, look at the way that God has worked through our heritage. Look at the way he has sustained our family from generation to generation. It is a powerful testimony to the people who are around us, to outsiders, and even to insiders. So what do we do with this this morning? Three questions uh, that 
uh, you can ask yourself and begin to answer as application. The first one is this. What are your actions telling people you influence? What are your actions, the things that you're doing, telling the people that you influence? If you're in a position of leadership, if you're the head of your household, and you want the people that you have influence over to do something, are you willing to do that? You want people to take risks that you manage and you help lead at work? Are you willing to take risks yourself? You set a culture and the people see it. What is your actions telling the people that you influence? Question number two, are you willing to make your priorities secondary to God's priorities? Are you willing to submit yourself to God? And the question I think all of us would answer is, yeah, mostly. So what are these areas in your life that you struggle to make secondary to God? That you say, God, this is something I hold on to really tight. And it's really hard for me to let go. What is it? There's great cost at following Christ. When the rich young ruler approaches Jesus in the Gospels, some of you know this story, he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And after a brief discussion about what he means by good teacher, Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. Sell everything, follow me. The cost is too great for this man. He loved his possessions too much. He walks away dejected. He can't handle the costliness of following Christ. God may cause us to lose our wealth, to serve him in a foreign land. He may very well do that. But there's many of you in here that God is calling you to different other things in your life. Not to sell all your possessions. To be a risk taker in the way that you talk to people about your faith that you're around, even at work. Knowing that it might result in a demotion or your uh, firing to stand up for biblical values or speak about the way that God has ordered this world. There's no room in the life of a Christian for holding on to what we want and not being submissive to God's will. When we come to Christ, we give him everything. He may return some of what we desire to ourselves, but it's all of his to do with what he wants. This is the attitude and culture that we need at our church. As modern people, to go to God and say, I belong to you, do whatever you want with me. Now here's my requests. If you want to give them back to me, that's great. But I am fully yours. The ultimate example of this is in scripture. Luke 22, 42, Jesus goes to the garden. It's one of the most moving, emotionally traumatic stories of all of the gospels. Jesus is there, he's sweating blood, the tension of the story is great, we know he's about to die, that his life is about to be given, and he's sitting there and he's praying. And what does he pray? Father, if you're willing, take this cup away from me. I don't want to bear it. Nevertheless, Luke tells us, what is Jesus' response? Not my will, but your will be done. Jesus never shrinks back of the cost of living out the will of God, up even to the point of giving his own life. This is the same attitude he calls us to have today. And finally, 
Question three, what ways can you pass down stories of God's faithfulness? Maybe first, you just need to spend time thinking this week, find a few moments alone to think and reflect on the way God's been faithful in your life, the way that he's worked and things that he's done. Write them down so that you can share them. Make a plan for passing down your heritage and showing the ways that God is faithful. We should celebrate his work in our personal lives, in our corporate community here at CBC. All of these things, we should be people who see God and celebrate the great work that he does. I want to finish this morning by reading Psalm 145, a few verses out of it, verses 4 through 7. David writes this, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness they shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness Nehemiah 12 ends with the triumphal praise of God's people he has caused us to rejoice, and their joy is heard reverberating through the countryside. May we be a people who are committed to being sacrificial leaders, who are committed to submitting to the costly call of following Christ, and who are committed to passing down our heritage as we celebrate the great works of God in our families and in our communities. Let's pray.